Well, good morning. We are in week four of our fall emphasis called Operation Love Your Neighbor. Our theme is stirred, taken from the book of Hebrews chapter chapter 10, verse 24, which reads, and let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works. Glad you joined us for this. We're going to turn our attention this morning to two passages from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as we turn there, let's just take a moment and settle our hearts and our minds. Uh, Let's take a moment and just kind of leave behind the cares of last week, the demands of next week. And let's just take a moment of quiet as we center ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm only an annoying noise. There's an old... Chinese proverb that says, if you want to take revenge on your enemy, give each of his children a drum. (laughs) If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge and have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, And give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now, these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These words from these two passages from the New Testament make specific reference to or at the very least imply a very uncomfortable idea represented by a very uncomfortable word. I mean, most of us have words that when they're spoken make us a bit uncomfortable. They make us shiver like fingernails crossing over a chalkboard. For one reason or another, for years, my two children had a word that made them shiver whenever I would say it. I don't know why it caused them so much distress, but it was the word moist. Whenever we would say the word moist, they would plug their ears and say, Dad, don't say that. And so like a good parent, I took every opportunity I could to use the word moist in a sentence. I would bite into brownies and say, wow, aren't these brownies moist? Or wow, I'm really hot and sweaty. My armpits are moist. And Mike can say, Dad, that's nasty. Stop, stop, stop. The uncomfortable word I want to address today is not the word moist. It's a much more difficult word. It's the word sacrifice. Back to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that pray, profess his name and do not forget to do good. And share with others for such sacrifices God is pleased. I think that word sacrifice should give us pause. It should give us pause because the word sacrifice asks something of us. A sacrifice is something that comes at a substantial cost to my personhood. I think what gets lost in the practice and the profession of our faith is that it actually asks something of us. Dare I even say faith demands something of us. Yes, of course, the gift of salvation is free. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me so that my sins can be freely forgiven. But there is an expectation in the pages of Scripture that ask for a response. Even Jesus himself said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my follower, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, that's the language of sacrifice, take up their cross, the language of sacrifice, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That word is hard and unpopular because the word sacrifice asks of me to give something up, to be uncomfortable, inconvenience, to put others above myself, to go without. That's hard because quite frankly, I don't like doing any of those things. It doesn't come naturally to me as a human being to be uncomfortable or inconvenienced. I don't like to be put out. And even in my my, my darker moments, I don't know that I always like putting others above myself because I like me. And me wants stuff. And yet the tension is, 
Anything of substance requires a sacrifice. You want to get a college degree? You have to sacrifice. You want to learn a trade and become proficient at it? Sacrifice. You want a healthy marriage? Doesn't happen magically. It comes with incredible sacrifice. You want children? Let's talk about sacrifice. You take care of your aging parents. That's sacrifice. You want a healthy, vibrant, growing faith. It's going to take sacrifice. Our faith can't simply be the result of convenience. When it's easy, when I feel like it, when I have time with it. Because quite frankly, all that we say we believe is centered on a cross, which is the greatest symbol of sacrifice ever given to the world. See, if you want to have a faith, if I want to have a faith that has a bit of substance attached to it, it will require from me a level of devotion, forfeiting of some things in order to gain others that in the end my soul deeply, deeply desires. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the passage we just read, there are two sacrificial responses that the author addresses. The first is the sacrifice in our attitude, and the second is the sacrifice in our actions. I begin first with with attitude. I begin with the, the reverence and adoration that are produced through my thoughts and my words towards God, regardless of the events of the day, regardless of my current position in life, regardless of my current reality. Therefore, through Jesus, let us continue continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips. That that phrase, the fruit of the lips, is, is an Old Testament phrase. It simply refers to speech that we offer to God. That could be verbally through our prayers or prayers that we pray in our mind. That could be a reference to words that we say publicly together as we acknowledge the goodness of God as a congregation. It's why from time to time we put prayers up on the screen and we pray them together or recite psalms together because there's something about offering up words of praise to God together that could be encouraging one another in our faith as we're gathered together or speaking words that reflect his goodness to a wanting and waiting world. All of which requires and asks of me to arrange my attitude, which causes me to continually offer praises to God. Which is difficult, particularly if you're like me. In my more honest moments, I would admit to you that I can be a bit of a pessimist. I can see the glass is half empty. And I know there are many of you there, don't raise your hand, that lean a little more on the pessimistic side. One of my favorite phrases is, yeah, but what if? What if that happens? Or what, no, what if? we can't do that because what if? What if? And yet continually offering praise for me requires the intentional sacrifice in the way I shape and control and express my attitude. I want to take you on a trip back in history to 16th century Europe, particularly the year 1563. In the year 1563, Europe was in constant political turmoil, continual social unrest. People were angry 
And the way they dealt with their anger was they drank a lot, simply to numb the reality of their state. The hills and countryside were filled with the homeless and beggars because of the many financial crises happening. And just to make matters a bit more interesting, the bubonic plague was still ripping through the continent. Life expectancy in 1563 was incredibly low. If you were in your 30s, you were considered elderly. In the middle of all the chaos, in the middle of all the conflict, the emperor of Germany sent two ministers to Heidelberg to teach the hope and the message of the gospel. These two ministers developed a year-long curriculum in order to encourage the people that's now known as the Heidelberg Catechism which is still used in some churches today. In the Heidelberg Catechism, they put all of the instructions on Christian living, the way one should live life, the way one should worship, and the way one should work. They put all of those things under one heading, one title. And that was the heading and title of gratitude. So how in the world do you have gratitude in the midst of poverty and political unrest and the bubonic plague and the life expectancy being around 30 years old? How do you arrange your attitude in such a way that even in the midst of those circumstances, you can live with a thankful heart? Well, I would argue it's when we choose to sacrifice. When we choose to not only sacrifice, but also receive the sacrifice of Christ. The reader, the writer of Hebrews, in his letter, spends 13 chapters reminding us of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, his sacrifice, what his blood has done for us. And then at the very end, he begins to remind us that the old sacrificial system of worship, the bringing of animals, the millions of seemingly endless rules have been wiped away. Because of the sacrifice of Christ. And in the very end, our worship is summed up this way. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually, you and I, offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. Now that word continually can feel a little exhausting. Because can one really offer praise to God continually? Like, I'm not that good. Last weekend, my family and I went to the Marcus Center downtown and watched a performance of the musical Hamilton, which was actually rather good. I'm not really into musicals, and I went with a bad attitude, especially when I found out what my wife paid for the tickets, but it was really good. We had great seats, and I was actually mesmerized the whole time, which says a lot, and as the performance ended, hundreds of people stood up. And began to make their way out of these narrow corridors toward the exit. And listen, I get really claustrophobic really fast. And so I just wanted out. I saw the exit sign and I'm moving and I'm smashed in with all these people. And I don't like it. To make matters worse, there is this cute, kind, elderly woman behind me. And she is just pushing me, (laughs) pushing me. Like, where do you want me to go? And she's pushing me, and I'm getting more and more irritated and angry. So I just turn around and... I didn't. didn't. That's a joke. I didn't do it. I didn't do that. 
I respect my elders. I didn't. The writer of Hebrews says, let us continually, even when we're stuck in a jammed up corridor with a little old lady pushing you out of annoyance, let us continually offer up praise to God. See, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to offer worship to God, it was a chore, it was an event, it was tedious. In order to offer worship unto God, you had to provide a sacrifice, particularly for the forgiveness of your sins. And depending, depending on the size of your sin, the offering could be sizable, up, up, up to the size of an ox. I mean, like some of us, we would need to bring three or four oxes to the temple to sacrifice. And so imagine you, you get the ox, you pay for it, and then you bring this thing to church. You ever seen how big an ox is? And what do you do if the ox doesn't want to be sacrificed? That's a lot of weight moving around. So you bring your ox that comes at substantial cost. Then you have to go to the temple, which means traveling. You've got to get a priest involved. There's expense with that. You could only worship at certain places, in certain times, and in certain seasons. So there was this limit to how and when and where you could offer a sacrifice of worship unto God. But now the writer of Hebrews says, through Christ, I get to present my offerings of praise to God continually, even in the Marcus Center, getting pushed by a little old lady. I can worship him in my words, in the attitude of my heart. I make it a way of life. And as I sacrifice in my attitude, I then shift because the writer says, and and by the way, don't forget to do good. Don't forget to share your life with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Here's another way to say Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. And love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage that's most often read at weddings. I perform dozens and dozens and dozens of weddings in which 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is read because, which is fine, because it is the most detailed description in all the Bible of what love actually is. Now, what we've got to notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that none of the words used to describe love are feelings or emotions. Every single one is an action. The context of 1 Corinthians, it's not romance. It's community. It's serving one another. The Apostle Paul refers to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as the most excellent way. It reminds me of that classic 1989 film, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Anyone of you familiar with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? The classic line from that film, Be excellent. To each other. Come on, it's theologically sound. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, describes for us not only what love is, but also what love is not. So there's these lists. First it goes on to say that love, it doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. Love is never self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs and does not delight in evil. Rather, love is patient 
It's kind, protecting. Love is trusting and hopeful, persevering. Every one of those is an action, a sacrificial action. And then the passage goes on to say, in verse 13, and now these three things remain. The three building blocks of our faith. This is what we're left with. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That word greatest can actually be translated as the loudest. Three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the loudest is love. So let your actions be loud. I think in the Christian church, we on occasion get the order wrong. Because we're real loud with our faith. Defending our faith, standing up for what's right, all of which are good. But the greatest isn't faith or hope. It's love. Now the challenge we find in our current culture is it's hard to be sacrificial in our love when we're consumed with reacting to those things that make us angry or afraid. See, when things are difficult, the greatest response, well, it's to love. When things aren't clear, my default towards love. When someone disagrees with you, well, it's love. When someone's a jerk, be a jerk back. No, it's love. I spent many years of my life seeing the world very black and white. There's right and there's wrong. And what that meant is my definition of what is right and what is wrong. And yet, the world is not as black and white as we'd like it to be. And quite frankly, neither is the Christian faith. Which is why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, for we know in part. We only know part of the story. It's not been all revealed, therefore we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, which is a reference to the new heavens and the new earth, it's a reference to life and eternity with God. By then, when that happens, what is in part will disappear. It'll all be clear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, right now, we only see a reflection. We only see a reflection of the goodness of God as in a mirror. But then, when I'm with him in eternity, we shall see face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Like what we experience now is like a reflection in a mirror. There's a lot of mystery to our faith. Those that claim to have it all figured out, like they scare me. That's like, the, that's like the beginning of a cult leader. Someone thinks they've got it all figured out. Yes, no, listen, that's not to minimize faith. I have faith. I have a deep-rooted faith. I have a deeply grounded faith. I have, I have a hope that is not wavered by the events of the day. But I know there's a lot of gray. And because there's a lot of gray, I default towards a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 type of love. Because I had this revelation. It was very profound. 
And it was earth shattering, at least for me. And what I realized is that I'm not always right. And neither are you. The gospel itself is more relational than it is rational. And yes, of course, there are intellectual rational parts to our faith. But when you read the Bible, it's always written in the context of relationship. The building block of relationship is love defined in 1 Corinthians. So what do you do when you're in your car, you're driving down the highway, it's just you, no one else is there, and your favorite song comes on the radio? Well, what do you, you turn it up. Like I hear like Dave Matthews number 41, I just crank. And I'm singing along because like, if anyone's in the car, like no one wants that. Like that you want to clear this church out quick, let me sing. I, I, but you turn it up. The world needs a whole bunch of followers of Christ to turn up the volume on our love because that's God's favorite song. So instead of arguing with my friends about the goodness of God, why don't I just show them to the way I live my life? Or instead of trying to force some kind of truth on others, let your love and good works be evidence of the truth that we say we believe. I fear that sometimes we define who we are by what we're against. What if we defined who we are by the sacrificial love we have for one another? I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. And so as we wrap up our time together this weekend, I'm going to make Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, our prayer. Therefore, Northbrook Church, therefore through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, even when we don't feel like it, even when it's not convenient, even when it asks something of me, even when it causes me to love in a way I don't feel like loving. The fruit of lips that openly profess your name. And may we not, O oh God, forget to do good and share our lives with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Amen. Amen.